This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the Best Picture cast, and our now sixth member of the Five Timers Club, Karen B. Yeah. Wow, an extended the, version. I like that, it. That, that was guy like a, in the end was not clapping. Throw him out. It was like <laughs> Brett Favre style. Uh, that was a uh, it was like a con esque uh, ovation there. Five time, five time, five time returning co host at the G Moat. Very excited. Uh, potentially a proud owner of a of a new hat. Yes. Like, did I get that right? All right. Yes, you did. Yes, the f- fifth time is a hat. We still have yet. There's only one person that's passed the ten appearance mark. And she made a T-shirt for herself, but we're not decided that that is solely the thing. Okay. Personally, I thought I had found on Etsy where we could make personalized clapper boards, given that that's the logo for the show. But we'll determine if that's a reality yet. I know that you're scheduled to be on three episodes this next year. And when I told Adam that, he bumped up from his two to now four. I love this. I love this. And oh, well, and Competition. And- the competition's going, and I've been practicing my R E E L G O O D too, just to ooh, match him. Uh, ooh, so we'll ooh, see. So now I have another one to cue to here. Okay, I didn't even know. We didn't even prepare for that. All right, I can do this. Yeah, yeah. Focus. focus. A lot of competition. A lot of lot of inter inter competition here with these these podcast wars. So, as your fifth time, what has been your favorite episode so far? Yes. Yeah, so I have. I actually have a, a little a little ranking here. So I have the four episodes, and I have them how I ranked them, and I have them how we scored them. Uh, so the four the four episodes are uh, my my first episode was Cat uh, on a Hot Tin Roof, my second one was Lost in Translation, my third one was Grand Torino, and then the fourth one was Stalag Seventeen. So the highest ranked one was Lost in Translation with a forty six point four five. That's good for number ninety three on the list. Uh, next was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, 41.53. That's good for number 142 on the list. Next was Grand Torino, a 40.6. That's number 151 on the list. And then finally, Stalag 17 uh, is a 38.83 at number 156 on the list. So all four movies on the, the back half of the uh, the Gmail ranking. So I'm either a harsh, uh, a harsh grader or I just kind of pick... Uh, I pick more rare, rarefied fruits here. I was going to say you you tend to gravitate towards the deeper cuts. Yes, yes. So now I would rank them personally. I would go Lost in Translation one. I'd go Grand Torino two, Stalag seventeen three, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof four. I appreciate all four movies, but just if, in preference, that's how I would I would rank those four. Now, in all fairness, you are supposed to be on your first revisit this next year, and it's for our current twelfth ranked film on the list. So at some point you will crack the top 25. Very excited about that. Very excited. Unless you that. just 
completely drop that one down because we've I had that before. Wouldn't expect that from that's that is a that is, I don't want to spoil anything, but that is a movie I appreciate quite a bit. We'll see how I, I do that time around with it, but I I think that'll be a good conversation. So the two that Adam volunteered for, he started out with this question. Do you have any 1930 silent films that are in black and white that I could do? Now, knowing Adam, of course, that was teasing. So I decided to take it seriously and go through the list. He has now volunteered for Gaslight, which Ooh. I found ironic. That's a great yeah. film. From 1944, which we have coming up, I think, next June, maybe? That sounds about right. And then he also decided, because you had declined it, to take on the 12 Angry Men revisit. Wow. Wow. That's great. And he'll he'll enjoy that. And I I just declined it because, you know, it's one of my favorite movies. And I I don't know. This this that's a little it's a little big for me to get into. I, I would rather hear someone else talk about it at, at that point. But uh, now it's that's a revisit or or a, a full yes, episode. Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. It's a revisit. We covered that I wanna say it was the first episode back in season two. That sounds right. I think that was when we started doing it, and I'm like, I'm going to do one for me, and I'll let Dad pick one for him. And I picked 12 Angry Men, and I think you picked uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Haha, very nice. Yes. So we got a couple of deep episodes there on that. Can you imagine the mashup on that? <laughs> trying to imagine Henry Fonda and Camelot. <laughs> Doesn't quite come to mind immediately. I wonder why. But let's shift focus here. We're here to discuss Shane, the seminal Western from 1953, currently celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr., music by Victor Young, starring Alan Ladd as Shane, the titular Shane. Gene Arthur as Marion Starrett, Van Heflin as Joe Starrett, Brandon DeWild as Joey Starrett, a personal favorite of Kieran's. Jack Palance as Jack Wilson, although he was billed as, was it Walter Jack Palance? Mm. Which took me back when I was watching the credits. Ben Johnson as Chris Calloway. Edgar Buchanan as Fred Lewis. Emil Meyer as Rufus Riker. Elisha Cook Jr. as Frank Stonewall Torrey. Douglas Spencer as Axel Swede Shipstead. John Durkis as Morgan Riker. Alan Corby as Mrs. Liz Torrey, Paul McVeigh as Sam Grafton, and John Miller as Will Atke. Recognition for this film. Based on a book of the same name by Jack Schaefer, Shane was released on April 23, 1953. Though box office numbers were not yet tracked like they are now, it is believed that Shane grossed around $20 million at the domestic box office, an additional $13 million internationally, placing it inside the top five for 1953. Shane was nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for George Stevens, Supporting Actor for Palance and DeWild, and Adapted Screenplay for Guthrie, but would only win for Best Color Cinematography, back when they split the category between black and white and color cinematography. The film would go on to spawn a TV show in the 1960s, be an influence for other films across the world, as well as inspire several well-known industry giants such as Sam Peckinpah and Woody Allen. In 1993, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. The film would also be recognized by the American Film Institute on the following list, 
AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 69, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition, number 45, AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains with Shane as the number 16 hero, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes with Shane, Shane, come back at number 47. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers at number 53, and AFI's 10 Top 10 list as the number three Western of all time. Shane currently holds a 97% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 85 score on Metacritic, and a 3.7 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Now, normally, we would start with, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? But I will take a quick pause for an apology. This was supposed to be the last film on someone's AFI 100 list. Unfortunately, because of the timing of this particular episode and because he was working so diligently on a friend of ours podcast as well in all of his preparation for their 2010 debut episode, this fell how many short? Uh, it, it sadly fell seven short. So I have, uh, I have seven left because all my time went towards 2010 and exhausted me uh, quite a bit there. So, But you know what? I'm still going to try to get those seven in before the end of the year. I'll take my time with it and enjoy rather than cram. But I had hoped to have Shane be the final one, but I'll have to pick a pick a different one out of the seven to be the final one. Possibly Cabaret. That might be the last one then. Ah, musical. Yes. Okay. So moving on to our regularly scheduled programming, Dad, what is your relationship to this film? Um, I believe it was my sophomore year of high school. I had to read the book for a literature class and then on a like a friday class our teacher put or got the movie and put it on i mean literally a movie with reels and the film projector i think they she or he uh he i believe got it out of the uh public library and put it on so that's my first watching of the film you mean he didn't have a full drawer of videos just available for a rainy day or when he simply didn't want to teach, which was half the week? This is 1978. So the Stone Age. Uh, sure. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm not the one who just turned 60. Yeah. Kieran, this is your first time watch, but what's your relationship, I guess, to George Stevens since you requested this specifically knowing it would be George Stevens? Yes, uh, I'm a, a big fan of George Stevens. Uh, I, I really like his style of directing, and he kind of chooses different prod, uh, projects. Big fan of A Place in the Sun, Alice Adams, uh, his early musical with, I'm sorry, Fred Astaire and, and Ginger Rogers. The name's escaping me, but an, another uh, AFI top 100 there. Might be Swing Time. Yeah, Swing Time. There it is. Uh, yeah, or, 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 uh, an interesting director. He does, does Giant as well as Giants. This is kind of the prelude to... Shane is kind of the prelude to Giant and what he'd, he'd accomplished there. Just just missing Best Picture there with that, but winning Best Director. Uh, so I, I like him a lot. Uh, my f earliest knowledge of Shane, and I apologize in advance for this silly little anecdote, but uh, when I was uh, when I was a, a little kid, and just dating myself a bit here, there was a, a, an animated television show known as Animaniacs. Is that something that uh, you're, you're aware of there, Tom? Yes, he's got the thumbs up there. So Animaniacs, they had the, the, the intro theme to that was, you know, catchy little song. And then the second to last line, they'd always change. And it would be like, very zany, something Animaniacs. And one of the episodes was 
very zany comeback Shaney animaniacs. And me and my, you know, friend at the time, it was seven or eight year olds, were singing along uh, in a car ride with a, with my friend's dad. And my friend's dad t- t- sits up and he's like, how do you guys know what that is? Come back, Shane. What do you, how do you know that? And we're like, oh, it's, it's, it's from this cartoon. And he's like going on explaining and then loses our interest uh, there from that. But he was stunned <laughs> that we knew what that was. Of course, we didn't. We were just repeating the the television show. So then uh, he's like, go up and, and look up what that is. So uh, yes, but never saw the movie until this this month. One of the few things that I think I've gotten from Stevens in his, I would say, limited catalog of great movies, let's say, I think he has about five or six that are probably must-watches of his filmography, a lot less expansive than some of the peers of his, like Billy Wilder or William Wyler, definitely John Ford. But he combines an eye for the cinematography of Ford that, especially in his westerns, his ability to shoot vistas and large landscapes so that the uh, sunset is either at the top or at the bottom, and it's not boring that way. But also combining that with what I would say is kind of a Spielbergian sentimentality to all of his movies. They certainly have a, a sweetness or an emotional heft to all of them in a way that I don't think I get from a lot of Ford films. Yeah, he, he definitely has something to say and not in like a pushy or preachy type of way, but he, he, he puts out thought provoking content which I appreciate. And, you know, some, some tend to be a little more dramatic than others, um, you know, for saying place in the sun versus a, versus a Shane. But, uh, you know, we'll talk about this movie and what it's about. But uh, I, I like the voice that George Stevens has out there. Well, it, 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 it pertains to, if you've seen, there's a documentary that was done a few years ago called Five Came Back. And it was about five the five directors who ended up doing... Uh, films for the military during World War II, Stevens being one of them, John Huston, John Ford, Capra, probably Weiler, yeah. was Weiler Capra and Weiler. In fact, Weiler was uh, flying a B-17 and shooting a film of actual bombing raids and uh, fighter attacks. He did it without ear protection and lost over half of his hearing which uh, affected his directing later on. But I know for a fact that Stevens was so repulsed by the horrors of war that he spent a lot of his career trying to persuade people that violence is not something that we should be idolizing. So it doesn't make sense to me that Shane now, in retrospect, is so much about an anti-violence message. Yeah, it definitely ties into this film in particular as I wouldn't say the precursor to the modern Western or the anti-hero Western, although some have made that argument, Peck and Paw particularly. But I do think that it definitely has an influence and could be the pivot point between kind of your more celebratory gunsmoke type Westerns, your stagecoaches, even your Red Rivers, and then what came after it. So even the searchers is after Shane and you feel somewhat of a delineation point between this movie and the first half of Westerns that are much more comical. They're a lot more black and white heroic, the black hat versus the white hat and your later Westerns, which are much more gritty, a lot more 
dense, defined by a lot of anti-heroes. So obviously the Dollars trilogy, but all of Peckinpah's movies, The Wild Bunch comes to mind. Those are all coming afterwards. Eastwood, too, I mean, in, in his directorial work, I mean, you have to think of Unforgiven and uh, and High Plains Drifter, you know, uh, coming in and coming through the outsider coming into town. Not that this is a Western, but in watching Shane this week, a movie that I couldn't help. I'm like, wow, this is kind of the same plot is uh, is Roadhouse with uh, Patrick Swayze. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of similarities between the two. So I watching Shane for the second time last night. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, I kind of want to watch Roadhouse now. So fired up my uh, my real good app and uh, found out that uh, that Roadhouse is on HBO Max and did a little double feature with Roadhouse. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Indeed it is. So what is the movie about? I'm thinking the film is primarily a statement, an anti-violence statement. For some people, trying to turn a new leaf and uh, change their ways, there's a tendency for their past behavior and their past conduct to pull them back to where they were. No matter how much Shane tried to leave the gunslinger uh, world behind, Ultimately, he got pulled back in because he had a set of skills that were necessary in this context, and he ended up having to use them. He's not nearly the anti-hero, but the thing that this reminded me the most of is the more wholesome version of Will Money, especially with how this film ends. You can kind of see him going or walking into the bar by himself and basically taking on multiple guys all at once and having this blaze of glory, more or less. I think that's that's where my mind drifted to the most. But I want to say structurally, this is somewhat of an archetype. It's a lot of good versus evil, corporate versus small, independent person. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to apply to the Western, but this is something that we've seen a lot of times in movies, the David versus Goliath type of situation. And to a degree, Shane is somewhat of a messianic figure, even if he is somewhat imperfect in that. But he has to eventually use a method or means, which I think they kind of allude to it a bit, we're on the way out in the West at the time, and that being particularly violence, as the West became much more grounded as they started to civilize and get more cities. Violence just and the open range were not as readily apparent in that day and era. I think the the film that to me always I think a, a little bit more in that context as the I guess again the cleaving point between the Old West and the New West type of situation is uh, a film we've already discussed, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I think that's the perfect film for the difference between lawless guns and everybody is out for themselves, your own type of justice versus structure and government and an actual institutional value set. One thing I see in this one, too, is it's there's a little bit of a standing up to the bully and sticking up for yourself uh, by not just through violence, but through value and through your own personal values and and staying firm. And, and there's a bit of building a life for your family and for your family's future and going against the grain to do so. 
that's a, a common theme within the Western genre. Any manifest destiny or, or, or headed west, or you know, uh, even like a Grapes of Wrath or something like that, where you're you have to you have to fight your way through this this situation, this terrain, and stamp your uh, stamp your roots in and make it and make them grow despite all sorts of conflicts, not just the the conflicts of the weather and um, and the climate, but the social conflicts too. And you know, you have these these ranchers who are claiming the same land as you, and they're taken to being bullies and taken to being forceful, and they're chasing your employees away. And you're, you're really your goals are just to build this life for your for your son and for your family, and uh, the the costs and the tribulations of doing so. And I think a lot of that's covered in this movie. And I love a movie that's a lot of, that's about a lot of different things. And Shane is that to me. I don't think Shane's the hero of the film. The hero of the film is Joe Starrett. Shane is just the vehicle. And that's why Shane has to leave at the end. Because Shane will never change. And in order for things to change, he has to move on. And Starrett has to take over and be the leader of what the community will be. Now, thinking about this further, can you imagine a more modern plot where it's Amazon and Starrett is a union organizer and Shane happens to be some corporate lawyer who switches sides to come in and help them unionize? I like it. Let's print it. I mean, definitely the concept could be updated, and that's why I said it's it lends itself to somewhat of an archetype that we've seen many times before. But before we get too far on this, let me just push back slightly on your point. The reason I said that Shane is a little bit messianic is because by the end of the film, he has to take on the sins that he doesn't want them to have to commit. So he's atoning for all of the previous sins that we assume that he's done, which is are never said through the course of the film, might be in the book. I don't know, because I didn't read the book. But he takes on those types of sins. He does the thing that he doesn't think the rest of them can do, and then leaves so that they don't have to live with the consequences of having done that. Yes. Having read the book, it's implied I mean, and they do, they did some of that, the scene where the noise is behind him and he turns quickly and has his hand on his gun ready to draw. He had a background, a history that you could tell that he was a gunslinger and that he had a long history of gunfighting. So if Shane is celebrated for its breaking the wall and the horrors of violence in Westerns, how do you think this really became influential on others that came after it? I'm no historian for the Western genre. I'm, I'm somewhat of a noob to it. I've seen the big ones. I'm missing a few. But I think it's two things. It's It has the willingness to be to be trying to say something. And I feel like at this time, this is a genre where it's a lot of bang, bang, shoot them up. And it's a lot of formulaic stuff. And there's not a lot of deviance from, from the standard plot. And it's a lot of guns and a lot of death doesn't mean much. You know, the one death we get in this, or, you know, not we get a few, but the the first main one, it's a big deal. We have a big funeral. It's a big thing. You, you get the emotion behind the loss. And all this, all, everything we discuss with, you know, what is this movie about? It's about a lot of different things. There is something to be said within this movie. You mix that with the elite visuals of this film and the cinematography and the terrain and how great it looks 
versus how uh, palpable the story is, it's not a surprise to me that so many great minds looked at this and moved forward because High Noon is now a little bit after this. Uh, it would be the year before. Oh, High Noon's the year before. All right, so pair those two together because that's a High Noon's another one that's really kind of deviating from what the the normal Western is. So you have High Noon the year before, then you add the visuals of Shane and the message of Shane, and you could see that this is where the genre kind of bends off into a new a new influential area. You had mentioned before a couple of times that this is about a lot of things. You had also mentioned this is kind of standing up to the bully. How do you take a scene like Riker trying to reason with Starrett? The, the scene that's about two-thirds of the way through the movie, where he kind of tries to appeal to his humanity and say, my way of life is on its way out, but I'm trying to make the best of what I can with what I have left. And so while I'm going about it maybe in the wrong way, you can at least understand where I'm coming from. I thought that was a really nuanced scene that struck me both times that I've seen this film. It's an essential scene because it it gives your villain perspective and it puts the audience in the seat of the villain. So he's not just a mustache twirler. I'm a bully because I'm a bully. You get hit where he's coming from, even though you may not necessarily agree with his tactics or even his philosophy on life. You could see where life got him to where he is and how he's making the decisions he's making. And when you called attention to me saying the movie's about a lot of things, that was the first scene I went to in my head where it shows here's the layers of these characters and their multiple perspectives on this interesting time period in our country. One of the reasons I think that it strikes me as much as it does, I think with each subsequent war that we had, it has changed film culture. And coming out of World War II, you have a lot of very defined black hat versus white hat roles. Good versus evil. Either you're all good or you're all bad. And that works for a certain archetype. Like it works in Star Wars, where you have the Empire and you have the Rebellion. There's good and there's bad. There's light side and dark side. This feels a lot more of the Vietnam era, where there's a lot more nuance we don't know if we were in it for the right reasons. You're rooting for people, but should you be rooting for them? And so it's got kind of those weird elements where you're humanizing what should normally be, as you said, the mustache twirler, the guy who ties the girl to the tracks. Yeah. And even your heavy is not really doing anything crazy criminal. He doesn't draw unless he's drawn upon in Jack Palance. You know, and he's, you know, he's dressed all in black and he's definitely supposed to be the big scary guy, but he's not really, he's really just kind of existing with what he is and he's marches his way into this movie. So before we get too much further, I think you have a nominee for a category that is normally a part of your episodes, but not a part of ours, but I'm going to clear out as an ISO and give you the floor here. Who is your LVP, least valuable player? Oh, heaven on earth. Oh boy. Okay. So bless his bless his heart. But Brandon DeWild as Joey Starrett. I mean, my God here. Listen, I, <laughs> child acting around this time, I get it. It's not all perfect. There's gonna be hiccups, there's gonna be issues. Th this kid looks like he's not even doesn't even aware that he's on the set of a movie. Uh it's more like an America's funniest home videos uh, <laughs> appearance. The fact that he is nominated for an Oscar in this movie is this. Now, if that isn't the worst nomination 
for supporting actor that there's been. I really want to see it. And and just putting aside anything, I know that there's certain performances that are like either slightly offensive or, uh, you know, that there's there's issues there. But just pure acting, he has got to be the worst actor ever nominated for an Oscar. I, I have to see. I have to anyone out there, please. I'm at Best Picture Cast. DM me. I need I need to know. I need to see a worse performance than this because it is it is mind boggling that this child was up for an Oscar. What was the film a couple of years ago? Hillbilly Elegy and Glenn Close getting a nomination yes. for that. She didn't get a getting, nomination. Oh, she did. Yes, she she did. got a yes, name. She did. And I kept going, oh, my God, please don't let her have the Oscar for this. As much as I want Glenn Close to win an Oscar, and I thought she should have won for The Wife. I think that was the year Olivia Coleman won for The Favorite. And not that I'm decrying in any way the great Olivia Coleman for anything that she's accomplished, but... Glenn Close cannot win for Hillbilly Elegy. It would have been a mortal Ugh. sin. Now, Ugh. you changed the conversation, though. You didn't say the worst nomination of all time. You said the worst actor to be nominated. So for, for now, the, in, the, in that category. In that category. I'll just open oh, it no, up. That's the worst actor ever? Yeah. Worst actor to be nominated for anything. I think that is a worthwhile conversation to get all the Twitter trolls out here just you know, messaging <laughs> in, in us. Well, I mean, you can always you can always come up with Mickey Rooney and uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But that's not the worst actor to be nominated. I think you have to judge them on their full body of work. Now, if like Tom Green was ever nominated for something, that would be the worst actor to ever get an Oscar nomination. But any any or Jared Leto performance since Dallas, Dallas Buyers. Buyers Club, he's so overacted. <sighs> It's just such know. a strange nomination. I, I, I don't want to pick on the kid too much because the kid is a little kid and he did the best he could. But we, why is he? I mean, who's the poor actor that got snubbed for that spot? And this is a good category this year. The, I think the other nomination in this movie is great. I love the Jack Pounce nomination. That's kind of an, uh, an outside the box nomination there. Uh, so I, I don't know. That, that just I blew my mind that this got an Oscar nomination. This was no Tatum O'Neill, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Uh yeah. I mean, kids shouldn't be up for Oscars anyway. I'll, I'll throw, I'll say that. All right, I'll, I'll throw that out there. Right? There's been a couple. Uh, I know Tate O'Neill has won. You know, I think Haley Joe Osmond was great in The Sixth Sense. Uh, I haven't seen The Piano, but apparently Anna Paquin's great in that too. But let's let's not nominate little kids for Oscars. Let's just keep make it an adult award. So with the big the big boy table. Wasn't Henry Thomas nominated for Best Actor on uh, E.T.? I don't think he was. I know the little kid from Kramer versus Kramer was nominated. I'm not okay. sure about E.T. I also remember the kid from Room with Brie Larson was nominated. And I thought he, he deserved missed. that. He missed. Really? He wasn't I nominated. For he sure snubbed. he was nominated, but okay. No, that's the one that people say that goes back to the Revenant combo. Is that Leo shouldn't have won, that the little, that the little seven-year-old should have beat Leonardo DiCaprio for his only Oscar, but... I don't think we need to go uh, no, down that. No, because he would have been in Best Supporting Actor. He would not have been in Lead Actor if you would yeah, have. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they rarely nominate kids for lead. That's another a whole other tangent. There's only so many tangents we could go on here today. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Dad, are you ready to dig further into this movie? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Shane, 1953, directed by George Stevens, is a poignant exploration of morality, redemption, and the inevitable clash between civilization and the untamed frontier. Set against the sweeping vistas of Wyoming, Shane introduces us to the titular stranger played with mesmerizing intensity 
by Alan Ladd. A mysterious and stoic figure, Shane becomes embroiled in the conflict between the homesteaders and a powerful cattle baron, personified by the menacing Jack Wilson, Jack Palance. At the heart of the narrative is the Sterrett family, whose lives are forever altered by Shane's arrival. The nuanced performances of Van Heflin and Jean Arthur as Joe and Marion Sterrett lend emotional depth to the film, portraying the struggles of ordinary pioneers caught in the crossfire of progress and greed. Stevens' directorial prowess is evident in every frame as he skillfully captures the stark beauty of the landscape while delving into the complex dynamics of human relationships. The film's iconic moments, such as the unforgettable gunfight in the saloon and the poignant farewell scene, are elevated by are elevated by Loyal Griggs's cinematography and the haunting score by Victor Young. Shane stands a timeless exploration of the human condition, transcending its Western trappings to become a universal tale of sacrifice and honor. Thank you. Did you know? Principal photography had been completed in October 1951, but the amount of coverage shot by George Stevens resulted in such an extremely protracted editing process that the film wasn't released until August 1953. All this drove up the costs of what should have been a simple, straightforward Western. In fact, they spiraled so much that Paramount approached Howard Hughes about taking on the property, but he declined. He changed his mind, however, when he saw a rough cut and offered to buy the film on the spot. This made Paramount rethink its strategy. Originally, it was going to release it as a quote-unquote B-picture, but then decided it should be one of the studio's flagship films of the year. This proved to be a good decision, as the film was a major success and easily recouped its inflated budget. Did you know? Gene Arthur, then age 50, came out of semi-retirement to play Marion Starrett, largely as a favor to her friend, director George Stevens. She would retire completely from the film business after this picture. Did you know? In the funeral scene, the dog consistently refused to look into the grave. Finally, director George Stevens had the dog's trainer lie down in the bottom of the grave, and the dog played his part ably. The coffin, loaded with rocks for appropriate effect, was then lowered into the grave. But when the harmonica player began to play Dixie spontaneously, the crew was so moved by the scene that they began shoveling dirt into the grave before remembering that a live person was still down there. Did you know? Van Heflin and Alan Ladd became firm friends during the making of the film. In later years, Heflin's wife said one of the very rare times she ever saw her husband cry was when he learned of Ladd's premature death. Did you know? The first gunshots in the film are when Shane shows Joey how to fire a revolver. To enhance the dramatic effect of the shooting, the sounds of the gunshots were elevated by firing a gun into a garbage pail. The echoed reverberations made the gunfire sounds much louder. George Stevens' intention was to startle the audience with the first firing of a gun. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 194th episode, we discuss a cult Christmas classic from 1993 with The Nightmare Before Christmas, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Directed by Henry Selleck, written by Caroline Thompson, music by Danny Elfman, starring Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, and Paul Rubens. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L, 
G-O-O-D. Dad, I know you're particularly looking forward to that one. Yeah. He's had it circled on his calendar all year. I wonder why. Yeah, I saw that I saw that face he made when you <laughs> when you brought it up. When it was released, I saw the previews and went like, who wants to watch that? <laughs> A lot of people. I have never seen it, but things I do to entertain the public. Anything for content. Dad, best performance is up. Who do you have down? I have George Stevens. I think he really, really deserved the best director uh, nomination, and he won the award too, if I remember right. Correct? Nope, not nope. for this film. Not for this film. But I think he uh, he he deserved the nomination at least because I think this had more to do with him talking about his own philosophy or feelings than anything. I agreed. I also have him as my best performance. Yeah, it's a clean sweep. I, I did as well. Yeah. Well, I thought I was going outside the box on this one. Okay. Yeah, to me, he cemented himself as an all-timer here with this. He won for Place in the Sun before this, and then he'd win for Giant after. This is kind of the one in between, and this is the one that I think people remember as his his best film. But uh, this is the one that cemented him. And the, and the influence he had that he would have on directors who would who would follow him is uh it's it's very apparent here in this film so i hadn't realized but this is quite a stacked category for best director this year we've talked about now this is the fourth of the five films and i'm not sure we'll get to the fifth fred zinnemann won for from here to eternity which we celebrated with all pomp and circumstances as should be hell yeah william wyler for roman holiday george stevens for shane and billy wilder for stalag 17 it's great. It's a, it's a stacked here. Who was the fifth? Charles Walters for Lily. Okay, not familiar with that one either. No. So, yeah, no, just a, a great year. I love Roman Holiday, too. I mean, all four of those films are, are, are big thumbs up for me. Absolutely. Good year for film. Mm. And I think we've covered three or four this year from 1953 specifically. But yes, I, I think I've already mentioned when we were in the first section if it's not directly in the writing, I think either from the editing or just the overview process, there's a sentimentality and definitely a nuance that is apparent in the film that I don't think would be if not for his presence and his overall leadership in the film. And if we want to give it credit for saying a statement, most likely he is the most responsible. So if you're adding anything beyond the basic plot line or the basic story for the film, he has to get the most credit as far as I'm concerned. Best secondary performance. Let's go with Karen. Sure. I went with the uh, director of photography, Loyal Griggs. There was at least three scenes that I made note of where the cinematography just completely took over the mood and the deliverance of the scene. We have the funeral scene, which you mentioned in the Did You Knows, a beautiful, beautiful scene, wonderfully shot. That shot with the dog that you called attention to, just outstanding. Uh, how they pan down off the hill, the harmonica play. The camera work there is all-time stuff there in that. The fight between Shane and Big Joe uh, with the horses and and the the, the stable and the, the, just the chaos 
captured in that scene uh, is just outstanding. And then uh, again, that uh, just, I mean, there are many others, but another one I have to call attention to is, is Shane's exit there, just over the hill and through the cemetery, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. So uh, loved the shootout scenes, loved the, all the other stuff, but those three scenes alone was an easy way for me to uh, to call attention to Loyal Griggs. Great name, too, Loyal Griggs. Well, I like your comments. I mean, I thought about that, but the problem I had with them, and I'll just indicate this, there were several scenes where it was so dark, I had a hard time picking up what was going on in the scene. So I had some problems with the lighting. It should have been more backlit so that you had some definition, some contrast so that you could do it. And so that's one of the reasons why I didn't go with him in that. But for secondary performance, I thought he was the glue of this film. And that's Van Heflin. I think he, uh, every scene he was in, he was a leader and people migrated to him. I think he controlled a large portion of the script, even though Shane ultimately is the one who has to do the the dirty work, I think Heflin and his character really are the cement of the film. I think on my initial watch, I had him pegged. On this watch through, I got to give credit to Gene Arthur. For somebody who came completely out of retirement that is more famous for all of her 1930s work, maybe a little bit into the early 1940s, and her biggest starring roles happen to be in Capra films where Capra is just dripping with sentimentality and everything that he did it. Those are just heavy, heavy emotional movies. Her presence in this part of the cast brought an emotional weight that I don't know how many other actresses would easily be associated with for a frontier wife. Most of them, I think would have tried to play it a little bit more rough a little more Annie Oakley type as opposed to the way that it needed to be for the contrast between Starrett who wants to be carried out in a pine box. Her emotional weight through the movie, pleading with everybody to be against violence, I think was the key casting for me in the film and really provides an undertone that I think was the true message of the director And given that she was a personal friend, that he brought her out of retirement specifically to do this movie, I think that's added to the weight I want to throw her way for best secondary. Yeah, great selection. I had only seen her in black and white films. I'd never seen her in color before. So seeing Gene Arthur in color, I was like, whoa, you know, as she just popped on screen. So yeah, great, great choice. And certainly didn't look 50, if you ask me. Not at all. She didn't look like she aged much from You Can't Take It With You. Most charismatic, I have Alan Ladd. This, in a more modern sense, would be played by somebody a lot more rough and tumble, your Clint Eastwood types. Even to a degree, what John Wayne became by the end of his career, or would be in like The Searchers or True Grit, where he's kind of an anti-hero, a much more gruff, rough and tumble guy. This is why I say this is somewhat of a bridge film between those two eras of the Western, the white hat versus black hat and the anti-hero Western types that are a lot more violent is because Alan Ladd is charismatic despite being what is supposed to be the anti-hero of this film. 
if this were done even five or ten years later, I think that character is a lot different. He probably plays it a lot differently. But because he's much more clean cut, even his supposed rough and tumble uniform, the pioneer uh, leather, I don't know, how would you call it, chap, but like tasseled uniform that he has in the beginning of the film and by the end of the film, even that looks pretty clean cut. He just has a charisma that I think pops on the screen and you're drawn to rooting for his character, even though theoretically he's not supposed to be the guy that you're rooting for. My uh, selection for, for most charismatic was uh, Jack Palance. And uh, he was just so cool in this movie, man. I, I, you know, I wanted to hang out with him. He, he had the look, he had the vibe. And uh, to quote Keith Whitley, uh, you say it best when you say nothing at all. And he uh, just, when he sat in that chair and slouched and just stared, ooh, the chills in, in the room. And uh, it it's, is not an easy thing to accomplish uh, for an actor. And I love me a character who shows up in the middle of a movie and changes the narrative and changes the, uh, the, the vibe in the movie. And uh, I thought Jack Pounce totally did that without a ton of script to run with. You know, he, he, what little they gave him, he owned it. And he was, uh, he was a, a worthy adversary for the heroes of this film. I have to mention, since we're talking about Pounce just generally here, he has to be up there among the weirdest Academy Award winners for a good actor for winning for city slickers. Yeah, I love it, though. I love it. You know, it's comedy. Comedy should get a little more love in some of those some of those categories. But it's been a while since I've seen city slickers, but it was on all the time as a, as a kid. Well, you don't remember Jack Palance like I do, because Jack Palance went to Europe and was a big movie actor in a lot of European films for a long time. He came back to the United States and did the cash grab hosting Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know, it was the early was the precursor to reality TV. And so that's where I saw him. And then all of a sudden he's in this film and I'm going, oh well, this guy really is an actor. And I remember my dad loved the movie Shane. He would always talk about Jack Palance. He always said Jack Pellance was ruining himself by hosting Ripley's. He should be playing a gunfighter in movies. And then he gets to do somewhat that in City Slickers. Do you remember who who hosted the re the reboot of Ripley's, believe it or not, in the late 90s? I on do TBS? Not. Would be Superman himself, Dean Kane. Ah. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. And also. He's not Superman. <laughs> TV's Superman. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I was going to say, Christopher Reeve is always Superman. Dad, who's your most charismatic? I have Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd was basically a B-movie star until he did this film, but he just, he looked the part. And I kept pointing out as we're watching it, because my dad always pointed out that Alan Ladd was about five foot five, five point five foot six. And so they constantly shot it at weird angles so that he looked taller. But half of the film, he's on a box. So what you're saying is, and this is just for our friend Adam, he's the Tom Cruise of the 1950s. Sure. There you go. Or as we fondly call him, Thomas Mpather. Yes, my, my dad name. was 
five foot seven. I think he took great pride in the fact that is not really a very tall man. He was still taller than Alan Ladd. Let's move to best scene then. I have nine nominated. I have the original scene where Shane drifts in, and I do enjoy the fact that this movie kind of launches you into it. It doesn't give you a lot of preamble. We've always appreciated on this particular show movies that don't dawdle, let's say, at the beginning. Then I have Shane's first time at Grafton's. I have the Farmers Unite, so the, I guess, under the cover of Midnight meeting at Starrett's. I have Callaway and Shane, the fight between the two, the second time Shane goes to Grafton's. I have Riker makes an offer, which is the scene we talked about before where he tries to reason with him. I have Tori being killed. I have Shane fighting Starrett. Then I have the final showdown, which we've kind of briefly talked about. And then kind of, I'm going to put it as its own scene as the epilogue, but come back as the final scene. Any that I missed. I would say just the two others you mentioned in the Did You Know is the, the funeral scene and okay. uh, Shane teaching uh, little Joey how to shoot. All right. So out of those 11 then, what is your best scene? Uh, this was hard. Uh, this this was hard, picking between best and favorite. You know, I, I tend to think that the best scene is the is him – returning to the general store with, you know, with start hopping in and helping out and him kind of dumping the whiskey on him. I mean, that's, that's the scene that fires you up, you know, but it's kind of like, am I picking that as my favorite scene or my best scene? I think that's the best scene in the movie. I think that's where the narrative really, uh, really kind of grabs you by the balls. If, if, uh, if you will. I like you had a very difficult decision because that could have very easily been my favorite scene. I eventually picked it as my best. I went with my favorite scene being the nuanced scene that we talked about before where it humanizes Riker. But it was it was a very 50-50 between the two. And even now while you're talking, I'm like, do I want to nom- nominate the other one and flip the categories or should I just stick with my original choice? It, it's, it's on a knife's edge for me. I had the final showdown. I really liked... The climax, I thought the pacing was good. There was so much about it. It just really kind of drew the movie ultimately together for me. And so I thought it was well choreographed, well shot, and um, just overall was probably a, a great climax. Hard to argue with. So I already gave my favorite scene. Either of you... What would your favorite scene be? I went with Tori's uh, Tori's death scene. You know, I, I had Palance as my most charismatic. That little showdown there, it, it just it's it kind of looks a little different than a lot of the scenes in the movie uh, with with the lighting. And I, I have my one acting credit as Dick with Hat, and uh, I had to take a spill or two during that. And I appreciate a good a good spill and. Man, Tori's death scene of leaping back into that big old puddle of mud. It's a great fall. I made a great fall. So uh, I, I love I love Palance in that. I love the exchange between the two. Uh, the the quick draw and then that pause, which is which is very different from what you see in your typical Western. It was that pause, it's the I gotcha, and then he blows him away. Uh, so I, that was my favorite too, the movie. For me, it was Callow and Shane. Because these two 
are really the tools. Okay, we have the two sides dictating what, you know, determining what the battle is about. These two are the field generals. They're the ones doing it. And I I noticed that by the end, even though they were beating the crap out of each other, there was a certain level of respect for the other, which is why I think ultimately Callaway came to Shane to tip him off of the ambush. Because I think he developed some level of respect for him as a man as a result of this bar fight. There are times where there is a certain iconic moment within the movie that on behalf of the public, I do my most indelible for them, even though it's maybe not the most iconic or most remembered thing about the movie for me. So I will do the obvious choice and nominate Come Back, Shane. That's where I went to. Of course. Yeah. I, think- I mean, the minute you said we were doing Shane, what did I do? I went right to that line because that's the line that you always remember. And the one that you've been hamming up for 30 years of my life. (laughs) Yes, I know. Because ultimately, that's the thing. You want back what you perceive as being significant, even though it's dated and it no longer fits with the circumstances. The old nostalgia bug. Yep, it's a nostalgia. Sometimes there's just an answer, to, especially to that question, and that's the answer. So that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list, that is every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done for all 179 movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Marcello Marziali, 84, Italian actor. Under the Tuscan Sun, and Roberto Bagnini's Pinocchio. Shane McGowan, 65, Irish singer-songwriter, frontman for the Pogues, Fairy Tale of New York, and a pair of brown eyes. Uh, I, I just want to uh, just throw a, a, a little shout-out to Shane McGowan and the Pogues. I saw the Pogues about 10 years ago in my hometown. They came to play around Christmas time. Uh, they, you know, their their big song is a, is a Christmas song, I, Irish style band. And the thing I remember the most about them is how charismatic he was as a lead singer. I mean, he really stood out. Uh, I think my friend was opening for them that night, and we we all went out to support. I really didn't know much about the Pogues at the time, but they really knew how to capture an audience, and and he he really crushed it. So it was sad to see uh, that that he left us here uh, when I saw the write up for that. And unfortunately, one for my own personal loss because of. Loved this guy's work and loved him for everything he's done. Norman Lear, 101, American writer, producer, and activist. Created all in the family. Maud, Good Times, uh, The Jeffersons. Was the producer for Stand By Me. This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and Fried Green Tomatoes. Six-time Emmy winner. One of the seven original inductees into the TV Hall of Fame in 1984. David Sarnoff, William S. Paley, 
Edward R. Murrow, Patty Chayevsky, Lucille Ball, and Milton Berle were the others. He also received an Oscar screenplay nomination for Divorce American Style in 1967. I'll admit that the more I read his, I don't even want to call it a, an obituary. It was more of a celebration of his resume. It was a huge CV. He was a fascinating figure to just discover in some ways, because there were a bunch of things in there that I didn't know that he had done, that he was a part of. His activism was a huge portion or a, a paragraph all to itself. Just an absolutely wonderful figure in Hollywood. And obviously I knew that his passing at some point was going to be coming along with the day that Mel Brooks dies. And I think that dad will probably unfortunately sit out the show or we'll just have an episode where it's an in memoriam to Mel. But that's what happens with people in their nineties and their one hundreds. Unfortunately. Well, the three that were hanging together were Norman Lear, Dick Van Dyke and Mel Brooks. You know, that whole generation, Norman Lear was an icon, you know, and I mean, obviously, you know, he was friends with both Mel Brooks and with Carl Reiner. He put Rob in Law and the Family and then produced Rob or several of Rob's films. Basically got him started. Yeah. I lost my uh, my grandmother at 102, which is a a wonderful life. I mean, that's that's a great amount of time. But, you know, when you have someone that you care about or someone that that uh, whether, it, you know, it's a family member or or someone through pop culture that's been with you for that long, there is that feeling. It's even especially when they get to the triple digits that they're just always going to be there, you know, and, and that they can defy the numbers and they can keep the odds going. And when you lose them, it is a loss. It's 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 of course, we're celebrating the, the life and the career of someone who lived to 101, but there is a little part of it that hits you a little harder. It's like, ah, you know, I thought he was going to 105, 106, 107, you know, uh, but a, a hell of a career and uh, and just some just some wonderful work, just some wonderful work across the board. And the thing is, with certain celebrities or people that you've seen on screen, whether you know the real them or not, you develop an attachment a relationship with them, even if it's just through their character. So when inevitably, like Morgan Freeman or Harrison Ford or... Yeah, for me, it would be Clint Eastwood. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. It would be another one. The guys that are up there in age, Gene Hackman's going to eventually pass, Jack Nicholson. We're going to have this rash of people of that generation that are all going to pass, and it's going to have significant meaning to all of us who have enjoyed so much of their work across time. And as much as we like to celebrate in this moment, I never grew up with a lot of his shows, but he clearly has an outsized impact overall. And so this is why we do this section. I know it is a little bit morbid, but we are trying to celebrate the relationships that we all have with these people. For me, I did grow up with Norman Lear, and I made the comment after my mom had passed uh, back in 97, my dad in 2007, and I remember coming back from my dad's funeral, and my uh, situation was is when you lose both parents, that closes your childhood, you are now an adult because you have nothing to connect you really to your childhood yet. 
I take that back to some extent because the entertainers, the people that you grew up with, the people that touched your soul still allow you to go back to that childhood. And I'm seeing so many of the people who were my childhood heroes, the people that I enjoyed passing. I'm going to really shed a tear both for Mel and Dick Van Dyke. My mother had a tape recorder where she's asking me what I'm watching. And I'm talking about watching the Dick Dyke show. I was three. Well, I will say, because I know that it's going to come up later. It's a lot better than seeing your heroes turn out to be villains. Like, unfortunately, somebody like Brett Favre has been for both of us. Yeah. But we remember these fondly here for their contributions and how they've touched our lives with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I will start off with the one that I used for our closing last week. Shane, a gun is a tool, Marion, no better or no worse than any other tool. An axe, a shovel, or anything. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. Remember that. Marion Starrett, we'd all be much better off if there wasn't a single gun left in this valley, including yours. That sums up the entire gun debate in one quote. Shane, do you mind putting down that gun? Then I'll leave. Joe Serrett, what difference does it make? You're leaving anyway. Shane, I'd like it to be my idea. Shane, a man has to be what he is, Joey. Can't break the mold. I tried it, and it didn't work for me. I'll finish it off then. We want you, Shane. Joey, there's no living with a killin'. There's no going back from one. Right or wrong, it's a brand. A brand sticks. There's no going back. Now you run on home to your mother and tell her. Tell her everything's all right, and there aren't any more guns in this valley. Chris Calloway, I guess you didn't hear well, sod buster. I thought I told you, if you want to keep healthy, to stay out of here. Now get going. Look, pig farmer. You better get back inside with that woman and kid where it's safe. Shane, don't push it, Calloway. Exchange between Shane and Jack Wilson. So you're Jack Wilson. What's it mean to you, Shane? I've heard about you. What have you heard, Shane? I've heard that you're a low-down Yankee liar. Prove it. I'm out. Rufus Riker. I like Star at two. I'll kill him if I have to. I tell you, I'll kill him if I have to. Wilson. You mean I'll kill him if you have to. Marion, you're both out of your senses. This isn't worth a life, anybody's life. What are you fighting for? This shack, this little piece of ground, and nothing but work, work, work. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of trouble. Joe, let's move. Let's go on, please. Joe Starrett, that's one thing a married man has got to get used to, is a waiting for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Shane, I like a man who watches things go on around. It means he'll make his mark someday. I'm out. I think I just have to say the um the line that probably got the little guy his Oscar nomination. I hate you, Shane. And I'm out. Okay. Not one I thought we would be ending on, but sure. <laughs> And none of us did the famous 
Come back, Shane. That was just too easy. Okay. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Who would like to start? I'll defer. I guess then it's me. Have at it, Hoss. You look like you both wanted to defer, so... I think this is one, much like our film last week, where the industry side well outweighs the public. From an industry side, it's been a celebrated film. We talked about how many different lists it's on. It's probably the most recognized Stevens film, maybe up there with Giant. But I I think because of its place in the Western, where I don't think Giant is necessarily considered a Western, this is placed on a lot more celebratory lists of Westerns and, and the like. I think historically it marks a certain point that we've talked about th- throughout the show. I think critics still enjoy it, even if the public has not often seen it. So I'm going to go for the full five on the industry side of it, given the historical context and how much it's been celebrated But unfortunately, this falls on the other side of a lot of the movies that we've talked about with Karen. This is not one that the public at large has really gone back and seen. I'm going to be a little bit nice. I'm going to say because of the ending line and the certain iconic moment, I'm going to give it a two for a seven overall. Uh, Okay, Um, I'm going to I'll match the five. I think that's pretty easy uh, to I mean, it's the amount of influence that this thing has had, even within its genre, even outside of its genre. I mean, the Western genre is pretty vast and something that you have have had some greats dabble in. But Shane is definitely a, a place that people go. I mean, considered top, certainly a top five Western, if not a top three Western, if not a top Western. So that, that five is pretty easy to defend. I'm going to be a little nicer on the, the public's side of things because... This is definitely something people have heard of. And if you look at some modern iterations of it, I know uh, you Marvel guys love Logan. And that's, uh, I think, a bit of a retelling of this one. And I think if, if, you look at, if you look at Shane as what it is, I think people know what it is. And people know that it's a Western. The comeback Shane is a line that, that people can react to. So I'll go with a solid three there for that, and we'll call it an eight. Well, for the industry, I don't go to a five. Because there were a lot of Westerns that were made after this that were more traditional. One of my favorites, Rio Bravo, is more of a traditional. So I can't give it a complete one that it completely changed the genre. Not to mention the fact that we had, I think in 1960, like two-thirds of all network television was a Western or some bizarre number like that. So... Uh, I'm going to go with a 4.5 for the industry. It had a huge impact, but it was not completely worth a five for the reason that it didn't completely wipe out the alternative. For the public, I struggled with this one because I think there are a lot of people that know about it and know kind of what it's involving, but they've never seen the film but you can play the iconic scene. And I would say that probably a third of people who are over 30 would kind of have some idea of what movie it came from 
the closing scene. So I went with a 2.5 for the public. So it tried to split it in half. So that gives me a seven overall. Let me just ask this question. Just if, if you took the average, not just the average person off the street, but just the average like casual movie fan and ask them to name four classic Westerns. What, what, what four, like family, family feud style, what four Westerns do you think would be the ones that would, they would, would say the most? The good, the bad and the ugly would probably come up pretty close to the, the top. Then I think it's partly dependent on taste. I don't think a lot of people are going to go back to stagecoach, but you're going to name at least one John Wayne film. So is Rio Bravo that film? Red River? I don't know if those get named before Shane. Ooh, I think I Shane gets named. I think Shane gets named in a top four. I'm not sure it does. I think Unforgiven gets named before Shane uh, just because of the recency bias. Maybe they're going to be dumb and say it dances with wolves or something, but um, I mean, don't, don't you laugh, but it's Family Feud. Show me dances with wolves. Well, I mean, you said name a Western, but... You didn't say name a good Western. Right, right. Oh, 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 put words in my mouth. Don't put words in my mouth. Yeah. Um, uh, I think Shane is on the board there, is my point. I, I think when I think within its genre and the public's knowledge of the genre, I think it's on the on the upper echelon of getting names there. Well, the thing is, is we have a sample group every Monday that somebody leads the meeting and could ask these questions and just doesn't. Yeah, I suppose I could. Yeah, see, see what they say this week. Yeah, I'll mark it down and I will ask the question. We'll see how many movies come up before Shane. I will guarantee that I will ask for everybody's best Westerns and no pun intended. My guess is, is that Shane will not be mentioned. Hmm. I think it'll be mentioned, but I think it's going to be like eight or nine deep. Ooh, I'm not even sure. And just remember, because we're talking impact significance, like what are the what are the classic westerns? Uh-huh. I feel like I feel like because someone might say that well, this is legacy, having not seen it. Oh, legacy, sorry, legacy. Yeah. Yep. Now, impact and significance a little different. Yeah, but legacy, someone may say Shane without having seen it. Is my point? It's like they'll go, oh well, well I think Shane, you know, because it's it it has the iconography that that was well. How far before something like True Grit comes up? True Grit will be on there. Either version. And do you take modern westerns like uh, No Country for Old Men? I I I think if you were if you word it with classic westerns, uh, they're not going to say No Country for Old Men. Okay, all right. So you got to phrase it that way. All right, all right. Yeah. So that's a seven point three three average between the three of us. Impact and significance. You guys going to make me lead off again? No, I'll go. Uh, the industry had good reviews. There were people that saw some flaws in it. So I went with a 4.0 for the industry. In the public, I think it it was basically, when they look at it, it was the number three box office for 1953. It's not perfect. It wasn't a huge, you know, like mega revenue generator. But I think the public really migrated towards it. They really enjoyed it. And it became part of... uh, part of the culture at that time. So I gave it a 4.5 for an 8.5 overall. I think the, the fact that they were, the studios were teetering with this being a B movie 
and it taking off the way that he that it does is is a key factor in this category. So uh, for for it to go from there to all the Oscar nominations it had, now it only had the one win, which I believe was cinematography, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So I think within the industry, I got to go four five. I mean, with if this is like a best picture winner, it's a it's an easy five. So a four five it's it's a it's a heavy, heavily nominated thing in a good year i i think i go that there with that and then you know like we said the b movie and people come out to cover what was something they might have spent a little too much money on and it has a, some good success in the box office didn't quite beat out the robe dana uh, as we just as we established in our stalic uh, episode but uh yeah i'm 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 going to i'm going to give it a uh hmm. I'm going to match it with a 4.5 there too. So I'm going to call it a, I'm going to call it a nine. So I'm torn. I'm somewhere between the two of you, to be quite honest. I originally had an exact replica of Dana's scores, but to be nominated for that many Oscars, and it's no shame to lose a bunch of them to from here to eternity. Yeah. It's a seminal film. That's, that's a great all time film. Absolutely. So if if we're really talking that Stalag is like the redheaded stepchild of Roman Holiday, Shane, and From Here to Eternity, that's not a bad list. Not at it's all. It's really not. You got like six nominations in a year where there were some really great movies. And I know we did our top 1950s list, and frankly – now that we've watched a bunch more from this, we probably should even revisit that. Uh, I know next year we have our top 1970s movies, and that's just going to be, oh, that'll be a bloodbath. Mm. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But my goodness, uh, I mean, I'm my number is stuck. I think the public, I'll go a 4.5. It's not the highest of highs. Usually I reserve a full 10 in this category for like, Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I may not have even gotten a full 10. And that movie was like number one for a year and a half. So, boy, splitting hairs here. All right, I'm going to go 4.5 and 4.5. Okay, so I'll go yeah. with the nine. Dana said 4.4 before. I'm like, oh, boy, we're getting real, <laughs> we're getting real crafty here with this. I like that. Oh, no, not quite. Not quite. I may just throw out at some point in time, like 7.69. I love that. I love that. Just to screw with them. Don't let Adam, Adam see that, though, because he'll start doing that every time and drive you crazy. No, he's more interested in finding out uh, where this place is in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So that's an 8.83 average between the three of us. Novelty. This is the first inklings of a darker Western, although you made a good point that to a degree isn't high noon somewhat of that the year before. Mm -hmm. The execution is usually where I take points off, but the only thing that I have a, a problem with in the execution, even I'm not nearly as hard on Joey as Kieran is. <laughs> I hate you, Shane. My issue in this was the editing. There were some clearly bad edits. 
Like you could definitely tell where they're splicing together stuff that shouldn't have ever been spliced together. There's a couple of moments where there it really feels rough as a transition between quick cuts and and certain things. It, <laughs> yes, it sticks I remember out. your audible gasp. Yeah, that's one of the few things that I really notice as a technical thing is if they have a poor editing job. But they were also working in a much more primitive time with a lot of this production yet. So with that all being said, the production design on this and the accuracy of the art direction are top notch. The cinematography, as we've mentioned before, is excellent. And this is also the first time Paramount experimented with widescreen aspect ratios. So I think it even gets credit for that. I'm going to go a nine. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this movie looks like a million bucks. It, it really does. And everything you just said there and set design and, and everything from there. Uh, I'm not even as harsh on the edits as you are. The influence is is wild here within the genre. And again, this is a genre which which has been saturated with television and spaghetti westerns and a whole, whole lot of content. And the only reason I, I can't go full pedal the metal is because of high noon because high noon kind of got there first as as taking the the hard left within the genre uh i'm gonna go 9.5 okay 8.5 no. 8.5 no all right taking into account the consideration of the non-violent aspect and all of that and the the theme of violence and being opposed to violence and all that that gives it a, a significant bump up. The problem is, is it's a Western. There were so many Westerns. I mean, it was like, basically, you could guarantee that on a, any given night in that era, you could go to the movie theater and see a Western. It wouldn't matter what Western, because there would be one there. I can't give it a lot of novelty for following a genre that was so dominant in that decade that um, we were churning them out like, you know, every once in a while you would have a different pattern, but otherwise everything in that genre as far as Westerns was like an M&M. It was the same one over and over and over. So actually for novelty, I went down a little bit. I went with a uh, eight for novelty simply because of the genre and where it was. And I gave it the points up because of the message itself. Now, I understand that High Noon took a different turn, but it was not nearly as anti-violent as this film was. High Noon was more about, you know, the lone man, the, the, the one man taking on everybody. So it was a different a different context completely. So I'm giving it, or I, otherwise I would give it 7.5, but I'm giving a half point up because I think it really was the first that really made this statement. Just to play devil's advocate, not that you gave it a bad score. I mean, you gave it a fine score, but in such a saturated genre, like what are the most five top, what are the top five most novel Westerns? Well, I think uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. I think Stagecoach really kind of established the genre. Maybe Unforgiven for putting the genre to rest. 
more or less. Uh, but there are a few others. Uh, tie a yellow Shane ribbon. Shane is close. Shane's probably pretty close to the top five, though, no? Ford Apache. My darling Clementine. You're missing one that I, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen, but that I would definitely put ahead of a bunch of the ones you're mentioning here at the back end. I'd put the Wild Bunch well ahead of several of those. I've never seen the Wild Bunch. Which is which is directly influenced by Shane. You know, he said you you led it with Peck and Paw, cited Shane as one of his major influences. Is my point is like I'm saying, like in, in the genre, I think Shane is in that upper tier of of influence and and uh, novelty. And I would personally put Once Upon a Time in the West ahead of the good, the bad, and the ugly, just personally at a novelty score. But certainly high noon's gotta be up there. I might put, put fistful of dollars ahead of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Well, you'll get your chance here soon. Oh, there you go. There you go. Tease the audience. But either way, that is also an 8.83 average between the three of us. Let's go to classicness. All right, Pop. It's up to you. Strong female characters throughout. It was, there was a, um, you know, it was kind of the dichotomy between good versus evil, right versus wrong, how you should behave how you shouldn't obviously you're not going to have diversity of cast in this time frame and under this uh, situation so that doesn't factor in i didn't see anything that was really wrong with it the biggest problem i had and i understand the concept of talking about motivation for the cattle ranchers versus the farmers and such so I gave it a little point up. I'm going to go with an 8.5 for novelty because starting with a 7, I'm giving it some, but I don't find any basis to go any higher than that. I mean, I think this is a pretty classic movie. I really do. Everything Dana said there, I'm pretty much on board with. The only area where I may give it a hit, and this was probably my biggest complaint about the movie, and I might I might rustle some feathers here, this was the cast. I mean... Outside of uh, Queen Jean Arthur, I think this is a little bit of a lackluster cast. And if we had some of those big names of the era within it, it would it would really check that big old classic box. Some of kind of if you can take the cast from Giant and put him into this. So that's kind of one area where I, I ha- I'm going to knock it a little bit. That being said, this movie is is pretty classic. So I, I went with with a nine. I cut this from the did you know section, but you want to know who the original casting of Shane and Joe Starrett was? Oh, you're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. What is it? So they were both nominated this year as Shane. It was supposed to be Montgomery Clift and Starrett was supposed to be William Holden. I mean, there you go. I mean, there you go. That This is a, this is an all time great movie with that. If you put the two of them in there, that that even elevates Palance a little bit. Uh, that's an all-timer right there. That hurts. That hurts. Oh, good. We're going to have easy math. I have an eight. This seems a little wholesome and somewhat outdated for the kind of movie that it's trying to be. If this movie was made 10 years later, I think you have a lot different casting to it. I think you have a slightly different tone to it. This is still somewhat of a bridge movie, and so that's one of the few places that I can really knock it. Alan Ladd isn't nearly an anti-hero 
and you kind of need that in this. I mean, it works despite some of that, and his being charismatic certainly doesn't detract from, from the film in any way. The one place that I will forgive this a little bit, being a period piece, as we used to always say, it usually gives a film like this the requisite spacing to get a time period correctly, and they went to extraordinary lengths to get the accuracy of the buildings, of the clothing choices, down to almost the last T. And like most Westerns, the attitudes towards women are certainly outdated in this, but this is also somewhat a product of its time, of the period piece. Like, I can't even fault it necessarily for that because it is somewhat historically accurate as much as it is noticeable. So I'm willing to be somewhat neutral at the seven starting point for something like this. I'll give it an additional point for being ahead of its time on the anti-violence stance, even though I don't think that it's as far anti-violence as we might have led people to believe how we've talked about the film for the last 90 minutes. So I have an eight. So that puts it at an 8.5 average between the three of us. You didn't need help with the math then. No, you thankfully made it very, very easy. Rewatchability. I'll be honest. There are parts in this movie that are rather boring for me. The wedding. Yeah. There are long stretches where I would lament having put this on. And so I go for a one for my eagerness to put this on unless I have to. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but that's where I'm at. Subjective. Subjective. I know. But depending on where you're at in the film, there are certain places where I wouldn't mind leaving it on. It's just that it's not for the entirety of the film itself. I think certain scenes, the opening scene where the Rikers are coming in and Shane just kind of comes out of nowhere. Great scene. I wouldn't mind rewatching that one. But then you could probably skip a few until he gets to Grafton's for the first time, as far as I'm concerned. And then when he gets back to Grafton's the second time, most of the best action in the movie is when he goes into town. And everything in between seems a little bit speechified. So I know I'm going to hurt my friend here, but I'm going to go with 3.5. Ooh. Wow. So that's a total of 4.5? No, 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 no. That's the total. Oh, the total. Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, I had a very opposite experience with, with this one. This was this had like warm blanket vibes for me. I mean, this is a movie I could totally throw in on a hungover Saturday afternoon and just get kind of lost in the world of it. Uh, I love the vibe. I love the setting. Um, one of the things I like about Westerns is you don't always kind of have to pay attention to what's going on. You can kind of just lay there and and deal with these people as they go to the go to the market and trade uh, trade furs for for um, sugars and rum and, and whatnot and just kind of get lost in another time. So th this is a total warm blanket type of movie for me. This is a movie I'll revisit for sure. And it's a movie that if it's on, I, I could easily keep on. I, I, whenever I do these podcasts, I always watch a movie twice. And the second watch almost inevitably becomes the quote unquote homework watch. And can be can be real daunting sometimes, particularly if the runtime is is unfriendly. I I, I dug this more the second time. I, I got into some of the scenes, heading into some of the set pieces. The familiarity helped. 
rewatchability wise, I think it's a, f- I think it's a four for, I'm going to put this on, on a regular basis. You know, maybe there'll be some others ahead of it. Um, and then maybe, a a, a 4.5 for keeping it on. So, uh, there definitely were a few scenes that it, particularly in the set, anytime they were at the pub, I was all in, man. Get get me get me back to town. But yeah, so so an eight point five for rewatchable. First of all, I have to ask the question: If you're having a Saturday morning hangover, is this because it was a really late night into the early morning, or did you really have a bad morning? <laughs> Saturday afternoon? Did I say morning or afternoon? It's always you usually, said afternoon. Usually afternoon. Okay, yeah, it's usually an afternoon. No, I mean, I uh, my my Friday nights are. Uh, um, I, I work in the uh, the industry, so the uh, the bar industry, uh, the bar industry. So usually um, getting home at a very very late time. So Saturday afternoons are, I need to kind of unwind a little bit there. So uh, I need I need some sort of vibey move. I can't I can't be watching uncut gems. It's just going to add to my anxiety. You know, <laughs> I got to be out on the on the range with uh, with Joe Start. All right, this one was difficult for me to determine because I liked the film. It had only been the second time that I had seen the film. There was about a 40-year gap, I think, between watching. Maybe actually been 45-year gap, or 43, something like that. But it's something that I should watch more, and if it was on and I saw it on, I might stop and watch for a few minutes. But it's not necessarily going to be my one of my go-tos. I have a list of uh, Westerns when I feel like watching a Western that I regularly go to and that I like watching. I'm not sure this is going to be on it. So I'm going to go with a 6.5. It should be on my list. I should watch it. I'm not going to turn it off. It's something that if somebody was interested, I would probably suggest watching once just to see how somebody who has never seen it reacts, that type of deal. So I'm going to kind of take a spot in between everyone. Nice. Three very different numbers. Yeah, and he was 0.5 away from making it really easy math. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Whatever. I thought about a six. Then I thought, boy, 6.5 would really screw up the math. I'm good. I'm good. So it's a 6.17 average between the three of us. Love it. <laughs> uh, you're good, so you say. So the audience score for this one, we had an 85% for Google users and an 81% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a final total of 8.3. So to repeat the categories, we had a 7.33 for Legacy, We had an 8.83 for impact and significance, an 8.83 for novelty, an 8.5 for classicness, a 6.17 for rewatchability, and an 8.3 for audience score, giving us a final total of 47.96. And currently placing it on our list, 0.01 ahead of Rocky, and just below do the right thing. Wow, two two movies I love quite a bit. And do you have what number is that there? Do you have the number? 73. 73. And that places it number 1 on the Kieran B hosted yes, episodes. 
a, a point and a half above lost in translation. So 73 versus 93, 20 spots ahead, but it will not get the top slot in uh, Kieran B's favorites. I still have lost in translation as my top movie there. I would go lost in translation, Shane, Gran Torino, Stalag 17, and then cat on a hot tin roof. There you go. I endorse that list. Cool. As always, if you disagree with any of our scores or you're just a troll, you can write us at <laughs> greatest all time movie podcast at gmail.com. Uh, yes. uh, find us on any of our socials at Gmote Podcast, now on Letterboxd and YouTube as of this last week. We're also on Facebook, on X slash Twitter, whatever you call it these days, and uh, the TikTok and the Gram. So you can find us there. Remaining questions for this one. Where did Shane come from? Or is it even really important? It's not important. The real question is, where does he go? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Newtown, same as the last. If I'm going to quote, uh, I'm going to quote Patrick Swayze and and Sam Elliott in Roadhouse. Always but... comes back to Roadhouse. <laughs> Roadhouse. <laughs> When's the G mode on Roadhouse? I know. I know. I know. You don't like movie suggestions there, but uh, yeah, I I I want to lean into. You know, not to step on the question, but uh, I'll lean into to Dana's about where is he going? Could it be interpret interpreted that he's mortally wounded at the end of this movie? We know he's bleeding. He heads off over the hill through a cemetery. I I, I the second time watching, I'm like, ooh, you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure the book better explains things, but like, I think it there's doesn't. a viewing of this movie where may, he might be mortally wounded. He might this might be it for him, and he and he his pride doesn't want him to kind of be buried in this town or be remembered for what he was doing in the town that he's going to ride off into where into the sunset i like it i myself think that he ends up going off and then gets hired by yul brenner to uh be part of the magnificent 13 ah love it speaking of yul brenner same director of photography as childhood favorite 10 commandments oh good old loyal griggs yeah he was the dp on 10 commandments that I did not know. 1956, I think. Sounds right. Same year, I think, is uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Ooh, yeah, I think that's right. Yes, the worst casting ever for that film. Edward G. Robinson as a uh, Egyptian. Uh, just never made any sense to me. It's heavily implied that Shane has killed before. But why does he have to leave now because he's killed again? If he was acceptable to them before, after he'd already killed, why is he not acceptable now? Because he has to admit that he's never going to be able to change. Yeah, I think there's been a few points throughout this podcast where Dana has uh, kind of explained the answer to this one. You know, that the whole that whole bit about nostalgia and wanting to, you know, wanting to be what was and, and Shane and his identity with with violence and killing and whatnot. I don't know what it is. Whenever we have a guest on, he seems to just like have <laughs> a higher degree of focus or something. He brings all the poignancy out. Maybe it's that he has to talk less, so he chooses his words more carefully. He likes to flex. Maybe guests other than you, Tom, actually draw out some sort of level of intelligence <laughs> In me that uh, is otherwise lacking. 
Mm. Yeah. It's a big old W for Dana today. I'll let him have this one. He gets so, <laughs> them so rarely. Yeah, sure. Why does Joey idolize Shane? <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, you know, kids idolize to some extent the bad guy, the grittiness. He's everything that his dad isn't. His dad is stuff he can't understand. Shane's all about wins or losses, fighting or winning. You know, I don't know. As much as I, I beat down on this character, and more, more on the actor, but the character of, of Lil Joey, I mean, I think there's some commentary here about him representing the future and the future's uh, adulation towards what it's viewing within this movie. And that's why they're having him kind of peer in on everything that Shane's doing and idolize Shane. So I think there there might be some commentary there from the director that this is where we're headed and this is the future kind of um, viewing Shane's justice versus his parents and and kind of being about the salt of the earth and and growing up on your own. So so the the whole question at the very beginning of this about what this movie is about scared the crap out of me because this is there's to me there are layers to this movie that can be can be studied and looked at but you know i i think there's a, a, an element of there of that there any remaining questions for either of you i do have one kind of massive nitpick i got i got to throw out there i don't have the music but you can enter the nitpick zone <laughs> yes do 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 this how is this child able to keep up with the a, a grown man on horseback to get all the way to this town that the family gets on a on a on a wagon to go to everything. This kid's just running along and running <laughs> along the whole way, and he's there. He's got a little mud on his face, and he's peers in, and then Shane just goes, "Ah, fuck it, kid, you can walk back," and he heads off. Like how? Like it's pretty well established that this place is not close. And and why is Shane, Shane trotting along that this kid can keep up with him? No, he's gonna be he's gonna be galloping his way there. I, I that made zero sense to me. That that whole section made zero sense. I guess they got to have the kid there to say goodbye, Shane. But I didn't get it. Help me out. Help me out. The kid is also unfazed by seeing three mass murders. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I guess the way they filmed it was somewhat wholesome enough to like, okay, fine. Yeah, he just saw three people murdered, but it's okay. <laughs> but if he saw like the last scene from Unforgiven and how that played out, I think that kid needs some counseling. <laughs> He'd probably write the screenplay to Pulp Fiction. All right. Anything further? Or we'll move on to our uh, remaining thoughts, which will be about one thing. Giants versus Packers this next week. Now, I did not invite this, but somebody on this panel has asked for a gentleman's wager of some variety. That's right. So I appeal to them to set the terms. Okay, but did we agree on maybe just sidebars? What we were going through before, was that off air? Was that the Gotti and the... Uh... Well, we can Chalamet make the choice the... after the fact. I, I want you to just okay. establish what the, the terms are. Is this content-driven or is this just punishment, period? Okay, so uh, yeah, I would say this is this is punishment, period. When we reconvene on our next episode, which should be somewhat soon after, in January, February-ish? Yeah, that... probably about a month. 
we just have a little like maybe the the closing thoughts we discuss the experience i, I would say that and it and this is a this is a straight win or lose bet there's no spreads it's this is giants win packers win that's the that's the deal here there's no we're not playing plus 3 minus 3 do you know who the home team is uh i, I think it's in jersey i, think I thought it's so too i think it is yeah i can look that up real quick it looks like it's in Jersey, yeah. Yeah, Gi- yeah, Packers at Giants. All right. So, what is the movie that you have selected for us to watch in the event of a Packer loss? It would be Clint Eastwood's The Rookie, the buddy cop movie with Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen, Raul Julia as the the heavy. Yes, I think um, I think Clint gets sexually assaulted by a female in that film. <laughs> It's uh, it's quite a lot. Yeah, it's 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 quite a lot. So um, I, I, he made the film to more or less he, he had a contract obligation with the studios to make this film. And uh, he I think he did a little thumb to nose. Uh, All right. You want to see me? You want to see me make a make a movie here? We'll make a movie. And he, he I don't know if he intentionally made it bad, but maybe that's his excuse afterwards. But it's it's quite it's quite the spectacle. So the rookie. So supposedly it uh, is only available to rent. I do not even have access to it. You can rent it on Prime though, probably right. Three dollars. Yeah, I think it's like three dollars. I can Venmo you three bucks if if the Giants win. It'd be an easy. Nah, pay. I, I I think the company just can save pay for your that. money because it's not happening. Oh well, that's probably right. Dad, what movie are we selecting for our esteemed guest? Well, I had my suggestion, so. I'll let you decide whether or not you want to proceed with that. See, I think either choice is going to be hard for him. They're both brutal. I would agree. Yeah, true. But at least mine would not necessarily have the same level of financial commitment. I don't care about the amount that I'm paying. I care about who's getting my money. And I don't know that I want to support a (laughs) Timothy Chalamet captained Willy Wonka. That's the issue. Um, I may I may have to go back to like my uh, middle school where I when I pay for another movie and sneak into that one, you know. So maybe I'll I'll give my money to the maestro and I'll sneak into uh, I'll sneak into Willy Wonka. But then you have the obligation, the privilege of seeing Hugh Grant in the role he was born to play as an Oompa Loompa. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, yes. My Hugh Grant disdain aside. Reality is setting in for me, and it's getting real grim. Oh, I'll, I'll I, give I don't it. know. I won't give it to you, Tom. I know. I I really don't feel this vindictive when he's supposed to be losing anyway. Like, do we really want to double down on, on doing this? How about how about if what if what if after the fact we then deliberate? So if the if and when the Giants lose then we do a uh, we do a deliberation after that between the two options. Well, technically, I could uh, just add something on at the end and and say that because this episode will come out after that game has happened. Oh, it will. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So then, let's make the decision now. Let's make the decision now. <sighs> I'm trying to think of other good options here. Oh, I know what we should do. This this seems much more reasonable. A poll. No, no, no. We're, we're going to go completely off the board. It's a movie that Dana and I love that I know that you are so-so on. 
We're adding a third one into the mix. Okay. 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 And you could do this content or not, but whenever. All the president's men. The thing is, I, I have seen it recently, though, so it's not... It would, it would be a rewatch, which I could do. Okay, fine. I mean, if you want to go with the other two and you're just going to... I, 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 I kind of liked Gotti because it, it's insane right. and I would never watch that. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's a world where I'll, we're all like on, on Prime Video, I'll throw Willy Wonka on just to see what's going on. With I mean, it, it's you know? better than what I've basically found for Dana for our Oscars bet this year. The uh, Dennis Rodman, <laughs> Dane Cook starring action film. Oh my Simon God. Simon Says. Is, oh my God. I'm pretty sure Gotti is a one percent on on Rotten Tomatoes, though. I think I ca- I came up with Left Behind the Nick Cage version uh, for Tom. How many bets have you? How many Oscar gambles have you guys done? Two. Two. How many have I won? He's won a both. Two. I love it. You won the tiebreaker because I basically gifted it to you last year. Wah, wah, wah. See my little violin. Uh, I apologize to the listeners out there. Gotti is not a 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was off. It's a 0% so <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it is a 0%. It just, it just feels, you know, we're talking about New York. It just feels New Yorkish. I like it. Let's do it. It's, All right, it's, fine. It seems we'll, like an we'll even go bar. Gotti. It seems like a more even bar. Uh, forgive us if if we don't watch this with you. <laughs> oh my god! I won't. I won't expect you to. I won't expect. Uh, Tommy DeVito is going to be throwing the ball downfield all day. We'll see. Uh, and ultimately, I, does he finish the game? Yes. Here's the problem with this: Tom and I can say we win. You have to say the Giants win. Uh, yep. We own the Packers along with 350,000 other people, but we own the Packers. The Braves are publicly shared, and I believe the next time that I speak to you, I will be a Braves owner too. So that'll be my my uh, hold my beer moment there. Well, theoretically, now that uh, the Wisconsin taxpayer is paying a shitload of money to keep the Brewers here through 2050, I think to a degree we're also Brewer owners, so I'll take I that. I love that too. That's great. Fantastic. I think 2050, I don't believe I'll be, I don't think the Brewers will be leaving any time in my life. Which is proper. Dana, you're going to outlive Norman Lear. We all know it. That's it. You're going to clear 101. I don't know. I I have to live with my wife. (laughs) Who thankfully doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, I did want to throw out before we go is that I was able to see the maestro uh, this week. Bradley Cooper's the maestro. And uh, was blown away. It was a wonderful film. It was unbelievably directed. I uh, it's going to be out on net, uh, Netflix, I believe, soon. I know there's some you know some controversies out it, and maybe it it could get hit up in the classic uh, uh, category down the line. But I, I really I can't say enough about Carrie Mulligan's performance in that. It I is... don't I don't like this. All of my friends are seeing all the great movies ahead of me. I haven't seen Saltburn yet. Adam's already seen it. Horns is seeing it over the weekend for free, the bastard. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't even get to these because I'm still stuck watching 1998 movies. Oh, God, well, I hear you. They don't come you. up here. We're not going to see The Maestro. The Maestro, I think, comes on Netflix on December 22nd. Yeah, which is a, it's a, it's a bit of a shame because to me, that's a movie that should be seen on the big screen. 
it, it is a bit of a spectacle. But it is one of those, like, the first 45 minutes to an hour, I was like, eh, what am I, why? I don't know where this movie's going. What's what's happening here? And then about the halfway mark, it takes its stride. So I loved it. I know there's been some mixed reviews to it, but to me, that that's going to be up for, uh, it should be up for quite a few Oscars. I, I, I thought it was, for, for a second effort from Bradley Cooper, it was wildly impressive. Good. So I have something to look forward to then whenever I'm done with this slog. But that's a good place to end it for the week. Thank you for listening. Jack, please. I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. Next week for our 194th episode, we discuss a cult Christmas classic from 1993 with The Nightmare Before Christmas, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Directed by Henry Selleck, written by Caroline Thompson, music by Danny Elfman, starring Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, and Paul Rubens. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 